Lyran Baker, and welcome back to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Natalie Kang. Known as the Chinese Southern Belle, Natalie is the founder and CEO of Global Hearth and the creator of an award-winning line of Georgia-grown, Asian-inspired sauces that are based on old family recipes and feature natural ingredients, which have given her the nickname, The Sauce Maven. She recently published her memoir cookbook, Egg Rolls and Sweet Tea, tracing her journey as a first-generation Chinese-American growing up in the Deep South. I am so excited to welcome Natalie to the podcast. Hi. Hi, ni hao, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I always start every interview by asking, what's the first thing that you ever cooked and about how old were you? (laughs) Well, I grew up in the deep south, you know, in Georgia. So I just remember the long summer days playing outside. I mean, it was just um, muscadine vines that my dad planted, um, playing in dandelion, like making pretend dandelion mud pies, perhaps. Um, <laughs> it sounds like my tea. childhood. Yeah, I mean, it was just out in the backyard, you know, like uh, sometimes a nearby creek. So I do remember doing make-believe like little mud pies with the dandelions. I do remember the wonderful sweet iced tea. I loved mine with the mint, the wild mint in the backyard. So um, those are the, the smells and flavors that I remember. Oh, how wonderful. It's so funny because I I have happy childhood memories like that too. Just looking around the backyard and picking mushrooms that I, no one should be eating, but just pretending. Exactly. <laughs> putting them Hoping up. that you're going to still be alive, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, hmm, I think this is an edible flower. It's a <laughs> little tangy. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah. it sounds like you had a really fun childhood. Could you tell us a little bit more what it was like growing up in Georgia and Also, what your food experience was like growing up. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of folks don't realize that, you know, our markets here, the food here, you know, not only the culinary traditions are very rich, but just the fresh vegetables, you know, the growing season. I think we we give it a run for their money, you know, with the European markets, Um, maybe in a different way, but just a lot of fresh vegetables and, you know, whatever was available since my parents both worked. They were both working professionals. So, you know, sometimes it would just be what was fast and fresh from the local market or from the local Winn-Dixie, you know. Um, it wasn't like always fresh dumplings on the table, you know, because my mom was a public schools teacher and, you know, we had all these extracurriculars and, you know, my parents are first generation Americans um, from Taiwan, but grew up here in Georgia, spent their adult lives here in Georgia. So they infused in us just a love of not only the, the weather and summer days, but the food, the sports. I mean, I just remember, you know, going fishing and swimming at Lake Alatoona, going to the county fairs with the candy apples, you know, and the funnel cakes if we got lucky, going fishing and stopping at the bait and tackle shop along the way, you know, can we stop, can we stop? And, And seeing all the different pickled things and the boiled peanuts. My mom loved boiled peanuts. The peach stands, you know, a chance to go down to the beach. So those are just joyful memories for me, you know, both of kind of the culture, the life down here and the food, you know, Mm. lots of farmers market stands. Yeah. The more I speak to food 
creators and authors that grew up in the South, the more I'm learning how, I mean, I feel like here in the Bay Area, everyone talks about the markets in California, but I feel like no one really talks about, you know, the the fresh produce and the markets in the South. And it's a shame because I feel like that is part of the identity there that no one really, really shares as much. It doesn't get as much credit, I guess, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's hard to beat, you know, some of the tropical fruits, um, you know, when I go to Taiwan or you go to California, I mean, there's just, I just love the local markets wherever you go, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I've had a chance to go to Alaska and to California, to New Zealand and Hawaii. And it's just, I love, love, love the local markets. Cause there's just always little gems, but you know, here, you know, it's not better or worse. It's just different, right? There's just different kinds of vegetables. Mm-hmm. And I love Love the brassicas, right? The chards and the collard greens, and maybe because I'm I'm used to eating them and preparing them, right? Because you have to you have to cook them a little bit longer, maybe chop them a little smaller, and they weren't always the most prestigious vegetables, but I love mm-hmm. them. You know the cabbages, and uh, I just I love being able to share that. Like when I was invited to the Atlanta uh, Botanical Gardens, right? To share eat the garden, you know, walk the garden, WOK, just grab something from their edible garden and then teach folks how to whip something up was just so fun. Mm. I'm curious too, what your meals look like when you were growing up. Was it harder to source certain ingredients that maybe you needed for family recipes? It was, I guess, but I think my mom just made do with whatever was local and fresh, right? Mm. So it wasn't like we made everything in a walk. Like she used a, an iron skillet. Her favorite was like a 12 inch iron skillet. And that is what mine is too. So mm-hmm. sometimes you didn't have the special tools, right? Just a sharp knife. It wasn't like you know, I had an imported cleaver necessarily. It was just a sharp knife, some fresh vegetables. And again, you know, we were all busy with different extracurriculars, you know, playing sports and my mom was working. So it was just whatever was kind of she had the energy for. And then later on, you know, I would start messing around in the kitchen too, you know? Yeah. Um, So it would just be sometimes just one fresh vegetable. It's not like you have to have, you know, Buddhist delight with 12 different vegetables and not everybody has time to, to chop and shop for everything. Right. So I think that's where the creativity came in because you just didn't have it available. Right. Like sometimes you would just have some collard greens or, you know, you might have something that is a dumpling, but have some different fillings, right? Mm-hmm. You might have an egg roll and have some different fillings. And that's where some of the, the recipes are really from, you know, from my palate and from my kitchen and inspired by what I remember, you know, the different flavors of my childhood of, you know, fresh tomatoes picked from the garden and then marinated in a brine of, of rice vinegar and sugar, you know. Um, or the wild spearmint picked from the backyard, you know, put into our, our sun tea and our sweet iced tea. So it wasn't really a trend. It was just what supper was. Right. I think it also just speaks to the immigrant experience because, you know, I, I remember my mother too. Back then, they, it was really a lot harder to find certain specialty ingredients, but you know, she would just, if she didn't have tamarind, she would use lemon. So I feel like there's just that, you know, adaptability that just happens when you move to another country and you can't find the ingredients that you need. Right. And I was, and I was lucky that I think it was a, an approach that they had that carried over into Mm -hmm. 
being more open to um, not only being adaptable, but just being more open to a different place, right? And making friends with people from different backgrounds. And, you know, it carried over the food part, then carried over it into um, kind of our social interactions, you know, just being more open to people from different places or, you know, if they had a different experience or a different background, being more open-minded in that way too. So I think that was a lot of positive in having a balance, you know, the two cultures. Yeah. So you didn't actually start out in food straight away. Maybe you could tell Mm -hmm. everybody a little bit more about yourself and what it was like before you entered the food world and how you became the sauce maven. (laughs) Um, Sure. Well, I had the opportunity to, um, after I went to the Harvard Kennedy School uh, for public policy, I mean, really, it was kind of a, a drawn from my experiences, right, of, of growing up in the South and seeing, you know, all this different sociocultural mishmash of being Asian American, Southern and female. And I became more aware of those things about my own identity. And I became more interested and curious about how it played out, you know, the different parallels of not only with food, but also with people. And then, you know, eyes are open to, um, you know, who's at the table, who's not at the table. I had the opportunity to meet different people. I had the opportunity to work in, in government, you know, in, um, the Atlanta city council. And so everything builds upon it. And then when I went to Vassar to college, you are opened up to a whole nother world of people from different backgrounds, not only foods, right? It kind of opened up my culinary curiosity too. I mean, it was like a microcosm of, wow, what's Baba Ganoush, you know? And then once you learn about the food, then you talk to the person and then you learn about where they grew up, right? And their experiences. So one thing kind of leads to another, but it often does seem to be connected by the food. And I realized, you know, after I I went to get my master's in public policy from Harvard that I was interested in the, in this intersection of like how, um, how the different sectors work together, you know, being in the private sector and then the public sector, I kind of had each one under my belt. And so then when I went to the corporate sector, I was you know, spending every day kind of working with diverse teams and trying to figure out how we could be more productive and focus on leadership development. And I realized that when we went out of the office and had lunch or happy hour, that everyone got along just fine. (laughs) And (laughs) that was where the real work started and the barriers came down and the conversations and maybe there were disagreements, but it was a lot of productivity and a lot of camaraderie. And I just realized how powerful the food experience could be. And so, um, you know, that diagonal for me was, was very, you know, enlightening, but it also helped connect what I had already done around leadership development, because a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my classmates actually went to uh, Capitol Hill or went into consulting after Harvard, and I ended up going into leadership development. And that's where, you know, I saw so clearly that the experience of breaking bread, making egg rolls, you know, making dumplings together really helped promote camaraderie and teamwork. And so from that, I ended up kind of developing a platform, which I called Cooking Up a Better World, um, where 
the tenets of leadership development and around team building are integrated with the power and the magic of food and culture. And I had the best job in the world of cooking up a better world and being able to facilitate this. And the Sauce Maven, <laughs> the Sauce Maven came about. Um, You're correct. I did not go to school for that. But it really, again, was kind of a personal I would open up the refrigerator door and I would have an entire door, an entire refrigerator filled with bottles of things. And none of them really captured the flavors of my childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, the sweet and sour flavors I mentioned with the tomato and the rice vinegar and the sugars and the marinades and the Vidalia onion in my you know, grandmother's stir fry sauce. So I just decided to let my taste buds lead the way. And I was also teaching already on the side, like a lot of the cooking classes. And I was already doing the, um, I created this uh, food and culture tour because people would stop me when I was shopping, when I was just doing my grocery shopping oh. on the soy sauce aisle. So it's all kind of organic. People just end up stopping me. <laughs> And I wouldn't get my shopping done, but we would have an entire like conversation about which soy sauce was best, right? Or what is lemongrass and how to use it. Mm. So I started getting invited to teach and to lead these tours. And I decided to kind of build my, my small business around this. And the sauces just kind of, you know, were led by my taste buds really. And so I decided to try to figure out how to put everything in a bottle because the participants in my classes would um, make things from scratch and I would teach them how to make things from scratch. But then at the end of the class, they would say, we just kind of want a shortcut and we want what's in your bottle because sometimes I would pre-make them right at home, uh, bring them to the class. And so one thing led to another and they were like, can you just put this in a bottle? So I decided to just put every, you know, try to mimic what I remember growing up with and my favorite flavors of a sweet chili peach, you know, and um, a soy ginger Vidalia, a stir fry sauce that could be all encompassing with all the balancing flavors um, of the ginger and the, the onion and the garlic and the sesame oils. And all of this is in my book, actually. It's uh, the first time ever that never before published my sauce recipes are the homemade versions are in the book. So that's... <laughs> Ah, it's nice to have shortcuts, I will say, but yeah. it's even better when you can try to make it from scratch. So that's exciting. So let's talk about your book and the title first, because I love the title. I think it makes complete sense. But how, was it hard to come up with egg rolls and sweet tea? What was the inspiration there? <laughs> well, the egg roll part is kind of reflective of my ethnic Asian heritage, right? Mm -hmm. But because I was born in Smyrna, Georgia, you know, sucking the nectar out of honeysuckles and, you know, going to the county fairs. So that's kind of the sweet iced tea part, not to mention that I really love sweet iced tea and it's just quintessentially Southern. You know, when I went up North to go to school and to work, that definitely was something that I got funny looks at, you know, when I asked for sugar or put sugar in my tea or asked for sweet iced tea, I definitely got some funny looks. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. You just take it for granted when you're down there, right? You just isn't, I mean, I just remember <clears throat> anytime I visit, there's just always tea at the table whenever you sit down to dine. So that makes yeah. sense. And, and, and the egg rolls and the dumplings are the most popular topics for my leadership and group kind of team building events. They're very fun because people, mm -hmm. when they learn, they develop the confidence around, well, one, trying something new. Many of the folks who take their 
the classes that I teach are new to, you know, making dumplings or egg rolls. And so we, we talk about practice makes perfect and how, you know, at the end of the day, don't get discouraged because even if your dumpling is ugly, it still tastes good. And it's just interesting, the parallels with developing the confidence and the sense of accomplishment <laughs> that can happen from a simple dumplings class. Right. Well, I, it's funny too, because you're right. Breaking bread is the sincerest olive branch. And I actually, mm-hmm. as a child, I remember there were, um, let's say international food days at my school where everyone had to bring something mm-hmm. from their, from their culture, their heritage. My mother's olive branch were the Filipino egg rolls. So, mm-hmm. because we knew that it was always a hit. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't matter if it was little kids or grown-ups who were going to taste it. They were, first of all, they were willing to try it, and then they were going to love it. And so, I love how you talk about how food can just really bring people together. And mm-hmm. also, I think what's really awesome about your book is that there is that fusion of Asian flavors and Southern style. Like, I think a lot of people may not think initially that it makes sense, but mm-hmm. it there is really harmonious fusion there. So what other ways can you beautifully blend the two cultures together and the two cuisines? Well, it comes out sometimes in my um, international supermarket tours when we're actually walking through, right, the produce mm-hmm. aisle or seeing um, different bottles of things or sometimes just unfamiliar, right, unfamiliar products or, or vegetables. And Sometimes we will talk about sesame and, you know, the, the history of sesame, mm-hmm. right, is actually has an African part of the story, an Asian part of the story. But oftentimes we think of it more for East Asian food cuisine. True. Um, another thing that has kind of surprising connections, um, you you might be familiar with it, too, is it with the banh mi, right? The French mm-hmm. breads and the Spanish influences. I mean, in the South, we have a very strong Native American influence. Um, and so some of the Asian countries also have the European influences. So another one is black eyed peas, too. You know, it's mm-hmm. actually has indigenous roots um, in South Asia. Right. But we often associate it with the South. And I think it's just interesting how you can have parallel foodways going on, right? I mean, sometimes you can debate where the first first was, um, whether that's that important. I'm not sure. It's kind of more interesting, I think, kind of the evolution and the, and the foodways that have traveled. But, you know, that's just also another fun, fun debate, right? Like who had the first dumpling or, who right. had the first, you know, um, and then the rich culinary history of rice is another one. Right. Where you clearly have, you know, hundreds of thousands of varieties of rice. Many of them, you know, the top producers are in Asia. But at the same time, we have an extremely rich cultural and culinary tradition of the Carolina rice. And it's a very important part of our history as well. Right. Not just the culinary tradition, but also the socioeconomic. Um, So I find it very fascinating and how it opens doors right up to learning more than just about the food, but it becomes a portal of, you know, history and people and place and palate. And we end up learning more about ourselves, you know, as Americans, as Southerners, mm-hmm. you know, what are our roots? And I think it makes us better and more appreciative of, you know, everything and everyone that came before us, right? 
And I think that is something that also brings us closer together in some ways, you know, to, to discover those commonalities where we may not have thought there was, Mm -hmm. I think is something, you know, to me, I, I find it very inspiring. You know, I find food very inspiring and I'm just glad that I have the opportunity to share it with other people. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And I I have have to say, you know, right now or in the last couple of years, I feel like our country is so divided. But what gives me hope is that there's food because at least (laughs) at least at the table, you know, conversations open up and commonalities are found. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we learn to when we learn to love the food, we are more open to the people. Yes. You know, and I've seen this firsthand, you know, whether it's participants, um, boardroom executives or community college students or just strangers brought together through their love of food. I mean, it's just the, the power and magic that happens actually does affect the bottom line. Mm-hmm. All right, we have to switch gears here and talk fried chicken because when it comes to Southern food, I can't help but think of fried chicken. And you have a recipe for fried chicken spring rolls with honey, which is the perfect fusion. So tell us more about your recipe and how it came about. <laughs> well, fried chicken, there, there's lots of different kinds of recipes for it. It's kind of fun to, to hear everyone's favorite. Um, but I just remember we would you know, on our way out to Lake Alatoona, we would pass the big chicken and <laughs> it's a landmark. It's a local landmark. It, it is just a big old chicken um, for KFC. <laughs> but I just remember we would get buckets of the chicken and we would have some leftover, you know, like it would just be a lot of food and uh, especially some of the, the different parts, you know, we all, we all had our favorite parts, you know, the leg or the thigh and, and, and I like the dark meat better. I like the ones with the bone. And so we would have sometimes these larger breast pieces with a lot of good meat, but we weren't sure what to do with it. And so I would just start putting them into my egg rolls. And it it was really good because it was already kind of marinated and seasoned. And then you just put in some vegetables and roll it up. And I just discovered that it was really good. A, a good way to do a leftover makeover but also a nice way to, to use up, you know, marinated fried chicken. Yeah. It's a great way to use up those leftovers. You're right. And it's already seasoned. So, and you've got the extra, I'm guessing double crunch if you've got some skin in there too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You can use rotisserie chicken as Mm -hmm. well, but um, I've also done like sliced pork chops, but the fried chicken is a really nice touch. Yeah. And then we also have to talk about peanuts because you you touched on it earlier. I Mm -hmm. love boiled peanuts. And I just remember growing up in New York, the only place I could find it was in Chinatown. But it's nice to know that in Georgia, you can find boiled peanuts too. Of course. Yes. I mean, that's why it took us so long to get anywhere. We'd be stopping at these (laughs) all the time. My mom would not let a boiled peanut stand go by. And then um, my dad, who was, kind of the ever, he was a business entrepreneur, but also Georgia Tech, you know, chemist and researcher would bring his uh, kind of spirit of innovation and testing to make the perfect boiled peanut and the perfect sweet iced tea, right? I mean, just that was the spirit of innovation was kind of fun. Mm. There's a special ingredient in your boiled peanuts too. Mm. Can you tell everybody what makes it a little different? (laughs) 
I said, but you have to get the book. Okay, we'll keep it as a, a spoil, and we won't spoil it. Get the no, book. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, the different spices are fun to mix and match, mm-hmm. and some spices are, you know, you might be more accustomed to them in certain dishes, right? So when you mix a spice into the bowl of peanuts, keep the secret spice. It's something that most people are more familiar using it in desserts and sweets. Mm-hmm. So that's another fun way to do fusion is to cross over the seasonings. Yeah, that's a great tip. I mean, that's and that's one of the, I guess, the easiest ways that you can start playing around with fusion cooking in your own kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some things that we normally think for savory, we might use for sweet, mm-hmm. right? And some spices that we're more accustomed to being in desserts, we might cross them over into some, just a little touch, not too much, right? Don't overdo it, but some mm-hmm. braised meats or some marinades. It adds a nice little kind of twist to it, but you have, yeah. to, you have to know not to overdo it though, right? That's very true. So how was the writing and development process for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it challenging? (laughs) I had a wonderful publisher, Gib Smith. So they made it a a very positive experience. I also was very lucky to have such a gifted photographer with Deborah Llewellyn who brought my dishes to life and made them so beautiful. So I really have to give them a shout out because it was it was not that hard um, to have lots of different ideas. I think because I'm more of an artistic cook, meaning kind of a pinch of this, pinch of that, um, it was more challenging to to measure everything. <laughs> I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm a little bit more of a, you know, let's just, you know, where's my measuring cup? And well, this kind of is, looks about enough, you know. So I think the challenging part was actually getting the specific quantities and so depending on what kind of person is, is using the book, I'm encouraging them to be creative, right? And to add their own twist. And I love hearing what other folks are doing with my recipes. So I hope that they'll stay in touch with me through IG, through Instagram, through Facebook, and let me know how you're making it your own creative, authentic versions, right? Because mm-hmm. in the end, it's all about if it tastes, if it tastes good, right? I agree. I agree. And everyone, everyone's palate is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So, and you know what, this is what I've learned. (laughs) No matter how precise your, you know, the recipe is, which I think is important, people are still going to change it. So, I, I, and I, I'm hoping that it will, you know, I mean, if I had been allowed to put in some blank pages in my book, I would have, because I really do love the creativity Uh, that people have. And I do hope that, you know, these are my kind of kitchen favorites, but I hope that you'll make it your own and add your own twist and share it with me. Because I think that's really what the tradition was about. I was just building upon it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just had a great opportunity to be a part of the journey. And I just love seeing how folks will make it their own favorites in their own home, you know. Yeah. And it's always so nice to see when people can be creative with what you've created. So it'll just keep evolving over time. And depending on where you are too, right? I mean, just depending on what ingredients you have access to or Mm -hmm. what you have time for. Um, Everyone, you have to kind of meet people where they are, right? In their own lives and kitchen. And I think that's 
part of the beauty of it all. Yeah, that's the beauty of cooking. Well, Natalie, I'm going to be cooking from your book for sure. But before I let you go, I have some quick closing questions. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency go-to dinner? <laughs> go-to dinner. Goodness. Um, the uh, the miso garlic noodles are actually pretty quick and easy, you know, and I can just, I have a, a garden right now that just has some greens and I literally just go outside and I just like, whether it's, I just pick it off. Um, if I have a scissors or a, a knife, you know, I just grab some greens and then I just do the garlic miso noodles and just throw it together. That's a really easy one. Other times I might just, if I have a fresh avocado, I'm doing the wasabi avocado <laughs> standing at the kitchen counter and just scooping <laughs> it. Out. That one's a quick one too. Uh, so yeah, I, I think those are really good ones to do. I have a one minute stir fry. I do that one a lot too you know, cause I had some bok choy growing. So mm. I just went, grabbed some bok choy and just, I have the, my sauces already. Well, that's the bad thing about my sauces. It makes you a lazy cook. So <laughs> all I do is grab the bok choy from the garden, literally. And then I just put my soy ginger sauce in it and it can be ready in like three minutes. Oh, such good options. I actually, that's the, the garlic miso butter noodles. Is one that of one is good because you can also make it every day to gourmet, right? Like you can top it off with the shichimi shrimp. And mm -hmm. that one is great for in-laws that come over. If you have to make it gourmet, just plate mm. it pretty. So it, it's easy to make, but you can make it gourmet. Good idea. What's the, <laughs> what's the one recipe that you treasure the most? Oh, that's hard. I know. Um, <laughs> My mom's Chinese spaghetti has mm. just, I just love it. That, that one is other my go-to one for any potlucks or parties, but it's one that just is so resonant of my favorite childhood dish, you know, and I think it's everybody's every time we do it for a party. Um, every time, you know, whether it's you're five or, or 80 years old, everybody seems to like it. And it also has a long life noodles. So it's symbolic. So oftentimes mm -hmm. I had it for my birthday or for the Lunar New Year. So that one has a special place in my heart and it's just super good, you know? <laughs> yeah, it looks delicious. Um, are you a messy cook or a neat cook? I'm fairly neat. I, I like to, not that I'm neat, neat, but I don't like to waste a bunch of stuff. I like to see how I can be um, economical and kind of, rinse along the way, like wash up along the way. Mm -hmm. I don't really want it to be a, like a whole nother chore for someone to clean up after me. So I try to be simple and fast uh, because I like to do other things too. I like to go biking and, you know, play tennis and spend time with friends. So I, I actually am pretty economical in the kitchen. That's a good idea. <laughs> what's a, well, what I actually usually ask, what's a good kitchen tip other than getting out of the kitchen as quickly as you can? <laughs> do you have any good well, tips? Well, I share? do a lot with my cleaver, actually. I mean, it's funny because uh, my friends joke like, you're never going to be Rachel Ray because all you do is work with your cleaver. You don't have any gadgets or anything. I'm like, well, I, I just do everything with my cleaver. Um, Are you opening cans with it? Oh, no, I'm not doing that, actually. 
but um, I'm doing almost everything else. And it's actually, it's, it's so popular that when I was doing my presentations, people would want to buy my cleaver. And so I finally put it on my website so you can actually get it. Um, it's one that I just love. I have about five different Asian types of cleavers and they're all different weights. And, you know, this one I just love because it's a good fit for my smaller hand. It's great for making quick work work of all the vegetables and any boneless meat. It's not the one I grab a different one. If I'm going to be like cutting through ribs and bones, mm -hmm. but it's actually on my website. It's made in the U S it's awesome. It's one mm. that we just grew up with. Yeah. So I was just tired of folks like taking it from me. <laughs> Were they sneaking <laughs> off with like, them? Yeah, it would disappear. And then they want to like buy it. I'm like, okay, y'all go to my website. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Well, one and done. I think all you really need is a good knife. You don't need all the fancy things. So I love that. <laughs> and then every week I try to share five little things with my audience. What's one good thing that you experienced this week? Oh, um, let me think. I had, um, I had events with my women in culinary, uh, Let's Talk Women and Les Dames des Scaffiers. It's where uh, several of my mentors were. They encouraged me to write the book. So I wanted to give them a shout out. Um, I had a really nice uh, a potluck with Les Dames des Scaffiers in Atlanta. I also had a gathering with my Leadership Atlanta crew. And yeah. I find a lot of inspiration um, from these groups and several of my mentors were the ones that encouraged me to write things down and to keep pursuing my dream of writing a book. So I'm very grateful to them. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Natalie, where can everyone find you and your book and your sauces and the cleaver? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cleaver. You can go to globalhearth.com. And I am the Sauce Maven on social media. And for my book, um, there are lots of wonderful independent booksellers. So I encourage folks to support the independent bookstores. And uh, you can go to globalhearth.com as well to order directly and proceeds from purchases through globalhearth.com will be going to support other women authors and entrepreneurs. And I also have a cookbook collective on globalhearth.com as well that is supporting other female authors. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll have to check that out. That's so neat. I didn't realize that. I feel very lucky. So we're trying to pay it forward. Oh, that's so nice. Natalie, thank you so much for spending your Friday morning with me. I cannot wait to cook from your book and hopefully we'll get to meet one day in person. Sounds great. Come visit in Atlanta. Oh. We'll go eat together. I would, I will. Okay. If I'm there, you know, I'll be emailing <laughs> you. <laughs> so we have you. wonderful gems. Yeah. Buford Highway is wonderful and all the neighborhood eateries. Oh, it's on my bucket list. All right. Thank you, Natalie. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye, y'all. You often hear discussions about authenticity when it comes to food, but anyone who understands the immigrant experience will also understand the evolution of food and recipes. I love that Natalie has captured that beautifully in her book, and I'm so excited to cook from it and taste her perspective when it comes to Asian American cooking. I hope you check out her book too. Thank you again to Natalie for joining us and to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking.